with that. I want to invite you to pray with me, and we're going to open God's Word together. Father, you are gracious, and we ask that uh, once again you would dole out your grace upon us, especially as we open your Word, Father, as we learn what you have to teach us. Uh, Today we pray that um, you would allow distractions to be minimal, uh, not just distractions out there, but really uh, the, the distractions in our own minds help us to have our attentions trained on your uh, word. And be present to us, Father, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we, we live increasingly in a world that uh, plays fast and loose with definitions And I want to tell you, when you lose definitions, chaos ensues. Simple case in point, if you ask one of your kids, hey, clean the gutters. And then a few minutes later, you look out the window, and your kid is in the street cleaning the city's gutters that lead to the sewer. You're like, I probably should have defined, you know, which gutters. Or, if you see your kid on your gutters, with a polishing cloth wiping the outside of the gutter to make sure it's clean and shiny. You're like, no, I probably should have specified. I want you to clean the gunk that's in in the gutter, right? Defining terms. And we live in a culture that's spinning out of control because of this issue, right? And actually, this uh, intentional redefining of things, like the redefining of divorce with the no-fault push, right? Then that led to a redefining of marriage, period, which quickly escalated to a redefining of sexuality. And then right on the heels of that, gender. What's a a man? What is a man? Could you imagine even 10 years ago living in a world where that can't be answered? So with the pulling away of definitions, chaos ensues. I'm not going to talk about those particular issues. We do have recent sermons on those issues. So if you're new to Christian Fellowship Church, we don't dodge those issues. I want to get more basic than that because what's the point of talking to a world about what marriage is supposed to be or what sexuality is or what gender is if we don't know what a Christian is? And many churches have not defined what that is. So what, what is a Christian is one question. And another question is, how do you know you are one? What does it look like? Well, a Christian is somebody who doesn't just believe in God. Remember, James said, demons believe in God. It's not just belief that God exists. It's understanding that there's a gap between me and God, and that gap is right. That gap is just. I did that gap. But then God did something to close that gap. I deserve death which is separation from the only source of life that this world has. But Jesus came to take that death for us and bring us into a right relationship with God. A Christian trusts that, believes that. A Christian doesn't believe, I've got to do a bunch of stuff to, um, you know, kind of take this sentence of death away from myself. We understand that's impossible. Someone else has to do it. That is Jesus Christ. So that is a Christian. Well, what does a Christian look like? How do we know somebody is a Christian? Well, there are many ways to answer that. And in this short series, we're looking at a few different attributes, marks, uh, traits 
right, of, of what a Christian does. We're looking at some actions. And that doesn't mean that uh, if you're sort of weak in one of these areas that you're definitely not a Christian, but I do think it causes us, prompts us, encourages us to uh, sharpen up a little bit, right? To, to, to get, uh, to use these categories to help us see where we need to grow into the Christian life a little bit because these are areas that the script, scriptures are clear about. These aren't Pastor Lucas's five top five things that I really want to talk to CFC about. It's broader than that, okay? So we looked at the fact that Christians study scripture, it doesn't matter if you're nerdy. It doesn't matter how well you did in school, whether you ever finished school, ever went to school, how literate you are. It doesn't matter. Christians study the Bible, period. Well, we also saw that Christians huddle together. The Christian life isn't something you do by yourself. The Christian life, by definition, is something you do with other people. So there's no such thing as the isolated person who just walks with the Lord. And I bump into these people all the time. I love Jesus. I study the Bible but I don't meet with other Christians. I'm done with organized religion. I'm done with the get-togethers. Well, you, you obviously don't do the first thing you said you do. Because the Bible throughout, even the Old Testament, is replete with the fact that we gather with the congregation. It was always that way. It will always be that way. Thirdly, disciples assist the church in specific ways. And that's one that could easily fall into like a, that's not that big of a deal. If I'm doing the other things, it doesn't really matter if I have a specific role in the church. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but maybe some of us, if you're asked after church, hey, you've been coming to the CFC for a while. What is your role at the church? I don't really have one. Well, that's an issue. And it could be an issue because as a church, we're not clear enough about the things that we need, maybe. Or it could be because we're not we don't really put that on a high shelf. We're like, yeah, study scripture, prayer, evangelism. These are top things, but having a specific role in the church, it's not that big of a deal. It is a big deal. And we're going to see that. Well, we see, I, <laughs> there's so many passages we can turn to, but today we're going to see it in 1 Peter. Would you turn with me to the book of 1 Peter? Almost right at the very end of your Bible, you have these sort of quick books, First and Second Peter, First, Second, Third John, Jude, and Revelation. Uh, Revelation, not as small, but all those little ones leading up to it. Short letters. First Peter is five chapters long. And right around the middle of chapter four, he talks about the end times. Now, I didn't... I didn't you know, I didn't think I was going to teach on spiritual gifts and your specific role in the church and have to start the sermon with a, a note about end times. But that's how Peter does it, right? And when we talk about end times, what do we talk about? We talk about wars and rumors of wars. We talk about tribulation. Are we going to be in it, not in it? What's the rapture look like? Do the clothes get left behind? We have all kinds of questions about end times. Interestingly, Scripture doesn't a lot of reasons why we debate about end times is because we're trying to fill in the gaps that Scripture, the authors of Scripture were like, that's not the point. And one of the points for Peter and for the other authors of Scripture is how you live in the meantime. So your focus is not the clouds. Your focus is your week, your day. And one of the things Peter wants you to do is get to work in the church. Check it out in 1 Peter chapter 4. He says... 
the end of all things is at hand. Oh boy, bring it, Peter, bring it. Talk to me about the Middle East. Talk to me about Ukraine or something. Talk to me about who's president of the United States. Talk to me about, no. The end of all things is at hand, therefore, behave yourself. There's Peter's eschatology class. End times 101. Behave yourself. Be self-controlled. Would you control yourself? Jesus is returning. We just saw that. We proclaimed that together in the Apostles' Creed. We sang it together. Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. So Peter say, hey, our master is going to be back, and he's going to wonder what you did with the time in between. So be self-controlled. Be sober-minded. Think about the kind of control that you have when you see that the end is near. Right? You're... Your fastest lap might be your last one. Just as you finally, the goal is finally there. You get this encouragement at the end to be self-controlled, sober-minded, clear thinking for the sake of your prayers. Prayer will be one of the marks that we see in the series. But have you considered that your prayer life might be wonky (laughs) or inefficient because you just misbehave a lot. And it's not that we earn the answers to our prayers, but it's just that somebody who's praying rightly tends to be the person who prays effective prayers, and effective prayers get answers, right? But praying rightly isn't saying the right words. It's being in the right place before God. For instance, when Jesus says, don't pray like the hypocrites, they have a lot of things to say. Pharisees had a lot of theological words. They heaped up their phrases, but they're hypocrites. The problem was their life, not the content of the prayers. And so he's like, be humble, pray in a closet, you know? Don't pray so other people can be wowed by your prayers. Pray because you actually are praying. And so for Peter, your prayer life can be messed up because you don't behave well, and maybe you don't behave well because you think you have all the time in the world. We are in the end times. Now, if Peter said 2,000 years ago he was in the end times, we're in the end of the end of the end. You know what I mean? It's even closer now. More pressure now. More obligation now. More encouragement now to live rightly. How do you live rightly? Verse 8, you love one another. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. It's interestingly how hotly we debate the end times, sometimes to the point of disassociating with other Christians. That is ironic, isn't it? That we would take something like the end times and use it to disassociate with other brothers. I've been accused of ignoring more than half of Scripture. I just ignore it because of my position, which is kind of a loose position, I'll tell you that, right? So we're not going to start unpacking positions of end times. The point is, your eschatology, that's just a big word for end times stuff, last things. Your eschatology should drive self-control, sobriety of mind, prayerful life, and above all, loving one another earnestly with oomph, right? Doing it intentionally, with energy, earnestly. 
since love covers a multitude of sins. And he's got to put that there because like, well, I tried loving and then this person's a jerk. I tried loving and it wasn't reciprocated. I know, it's messy. But you know what cleans up the mess? Love. The more you get involved at CFC, any church, the more you're going to run into uh, the imperfection of men and women in Christ. But just like any family, there are things we need to work on. There are, that we have bad days. <laughs> we make mistakes. But love covers a multitude of sins. So many things can be fixed if we commit to earnestly loving one another. And not just being off-put and kind of hopping churches from one church to the next, thinking we're going to find finally a place where I don't need love to cover stuff. You'll never find that place. So the goal is not to find a place where you don't find sins. The goal is to find a place that covers sins with intentional, earnest love. And it doesn't cover it like Christ's atonement covers it, but it covers it in a healing way, right? Only forgiveness is only found in the cross of Jesus Christ. And from that, we apply it to each other. And we don't just forget that the sins existed. We deal with it. We talk about it. And it's covered over with love. Love handles disagreements, fallouts, disappointments, failures. Love covers that. We have to apply it earnestly toward one another because Jesus is like a parent who comes home and hears all the fighting and then opens the door and is like, hey, what happened to all the chores I told you all to do? Well, we started the chores, but then this guy, did that, and then nothing got done. It was just a bunch of arguing. How many churches is Jesus going to roll up on when he returns? And instead of getting stuff done with love, it's a bunch of arguing, Right? So sobriety, with self-control, with prayer, we love one another above all things. We love one another earnestly because love covers a multitude of sins. I might say, I thought you said this was going to be about assisting the church. It is, but without that groundwork, we're just running around doing things in a church, but we don't, you know, that, that's the foundation. So because the end is near... We live a certain way. The basis of that living a certain way, that the core of it is loving one another. And one of the ways we love one another is, look, verse 9, hospitality. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Okay. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hospitality is a gracious receiving of somebody else, welcoming somebody else, being generous towards somebody else. Usually this means opening up your home historically, and normally, the way you show hospitality to somebody else is by inviting them into your house. It's a little bit awkward. Yeah, you apologize for the mess. They're like, you should see my house. Oh, ha, ha, ha. Get over it. You know what I'm saying? Nobody has a perfect house. The dog is barking. You know, there's dishes in the sink. Yes, you live life. You don't live in a museum. Great. You know what I'm saying? Like, you get over that initial hump. And welcome one another into our homes or even restaurants and especially at church. At church. 
So we don't just relegate that to a welcome team, but we all together welcome one another. We practice hospitality toward one another. Is that easy to do? No. That's why he says, do it without grumbling. If we didn't do it with self-control, if we didn't do it prayerfully, if we didn't do it with mental sobriety, we do it, maybe we do it, but we do it grumbling. Ugh, I've got to, can we clear Thursday night? We've got to have somebody over. Like, ugh. I know, that's our natural bent oftentimes, right? But if our prayers are effective and we're earnestly seeking ways to love one another, one of those simple ways is to open up our homes to one another, to open up our church to one another, to open up our ministries to one another, to show hospitality to each other. Now, I find it interesting that hospitality is not listed as a spiritual gift. Have you ever seen a list of spiritual gifts and hospitalities on there? I have. I see it a lot, actually. I understand why. Because he's about to get into spiritual gifts, and he just mentioned hospitality. If you remember back in Romans 12, Paul gets into spiritual gifts, and as soon as he's done, he talks about hospitality. So hospitality is related to spiritual gifts, and maybe some people are gifted, especially in the area of hospitality. I'm not saying it's for sure not a spiritual gift. The lists of spiritual gifts that we have in Scripture are not exhaustive or comprehensive. They're exemplary. They're examples. But interestingly, in Romans 12, Paul could have put it in the list, and he didn't. In the list, he's like, some people have this, some people have that. And then he goes, hey, but we all show hospitality. And then Peter's about to say, some people do this and some people do that. But before he does that, he goes, hey, but we all show hospitality. And one thing I think is a take-home from that is we don't get to go, wow, some people really have the gift of hospitality. Maybe that's true, but that doesn't let us off the hook of needing to be just as hospitable because it applies to everybody. Be hospitable toward one another. And so we don't relegate it to a ministry team or special uh, people in the church that are especially gifted in that area. But rather, we understand that it's a command for everybody. In Scripture, it's used for vetting whether somebody's qualified for certain things. So Timothy, uh, Paul tells Timothy, hey, in the church, uh, there's a lot of widows. You can't feed all the widows. You can't support all the widows. So whittle down which widows are the ones that really should be honored in this way, and then other widows, you have, they need another situation. That's a different sermon. Actually, you can go back. If you go back far enough, we preach through First Timothy. But one of those qualifications for widows, like, have they been hospitable? Now think about this. Paul is telling Timothy, if you find out this person has not been hospitable their whole life, and now finally that their husband is dead, they want the church to give them a bunch of stuff? Your answer is no. You know, I don't, I don't know if I would have written that. <laughs> That just sounds harsh. But I think in Paul's mind, he's not just nitpicking. He's saying, are they a a believer? Believers are hospitable. And that's one of the ways you see if somebody is a believer. Hospitality is not the mark that we're looking at today, but I think it leads up to it. When we're hospitable toward one another, we want to serve and help one another, and that's what we're going to get to. But first, verse 9 is a command for everybody. Show hospitality to one another 
without grumbling. And then verse 10, he gets more specific. So we love one another in general. We show hospitality in general. But then specifically, we love one another with gifts. As each, verse 10, as each has received the gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So we love one another. We're self-controlled and prayerful to love one another. We show hospitality to one another. And we love one another with specific gifts that God bestows upon his people. The first thing to point out, which is really obvious, is each has received one. You see that? I don't think Peter has in mind Christians that are like still kind of waiting to see if they have one. No, you have one. Each has received one. Paul emphasizes this in Romans 12. He emphasizes it, makes it clear in 1 Corinthians 12. Every believer has been entrusted, endowed, gifted something that benefits the church. Everybody. So if I am in a position where I'm not sure how I'm serving the church or what that gift is, the question is not, do I have one? The question is, how do I start, how do I get going, right? It's there. I just have to get into gear with what it is. But the emphasis is what the gifts are for. As each has received the gift, if you're a believer, you've received the gift. If you haven't received the gift, you're not a believer. It's that simple. But if you're a believer, that means you've received some kind of gift, some kind of grace that you give to others, but the emphasis is that it is for others. As each has received the gift, use it to serve one another. One of those books that I've, I I have not been intentionally delaying preaching through, but I'm going to just be candid and say, you know, uh, it would be a challenge is 1 Corinthians. It just has so many debatable, hot topics in there, and one of them is spiritual gifts. He talks about healings, tongues. Some of you are newer believers here. You're like, tongues, what's that? I know. I almost don't even want to get you into it. You know what I'm saying? Like, into the topic. So debated. So hotly contested. But I want to remind you, the point that Paul is making in 1 Corinthians 12 is not, here's a bunch of spiritual gifts, let me define them, and then you pick one or whatever. He's going, hey, hey, you guys are going kind of crazy with these gifts, so let me help you out. Let me help you out. The purpose of spiritual gifts is to help other people. And some of y'all speak in tongues, that means another language that nobody else understands, and then somebody else, no one else is interpreting it. That means somebody's going, la, 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 some other tongue, right, some other language, and everyone else is like, hmm, they didn't understand it. And he goes, that's not the purpose of that gift. So someone else needs to interpret it so that it blesses other people. If it doesn't bless other people, that's not the purpose of the gift. The purpose of the gift is to serve others, not yourself. And he makes that same emphasis here in verse 10. As each has received the gift, use it 
to serve one another. If that was obvious, he wouldn't have to put it there. But gifts can be kept to oneself, can't they? But that's not their purpose. Their purpose is to bless the other believers in the church. As each has received it, use it and use it to serve one another. It's an extension of that love and hospitality that he just finished talking about. So he's getting more specific. Love one another, show hospitality. Hey, and you've received a specific gift. Use that to serve someone else. It's interesting that when we think about those debates between churches and between denominations, some of that debate is around charismatic gifts. Maybe if you've heard that. Are you charismatic? Are you a charismatic? Do you go to a charismatic church? I don't like the charismatic movement. All gifts are charismatic. Strictly speaking, all gifts are charismatic because the Greek word for gift is charisma. And charisma comes from the Greek word for grace, charis. So it didn't come from you. It was given to you by God. It's a gift. You wouldn't have that, but God gave it to you. You wouldn't have that ability to serve the church that way, and God gave it to you. And then we argue about charismatic gifts. Listen, there is arguments to be made about what about some of those gifts that don't necessarily show up in every church. And we can have that conversation and that talk. It might come up in membership class today. Come on out. We'll talk about it. That's fine. I don't mind talking about it. But again, again, we scramble arguing about these things. And underneath it is the, the actual point that Scripture makes loud and clear, which is all of those gifts are charismatic because they're grace gifts given to show grace to other people. They're all spiritual. They're all spiritually empowered. Paul makes clear in 1 Corinthians 12, and Peter makes clear here that you've received that gift. Where'd you receive the gift from? God. He's the master and we're the stewards. And we steward God's varied grace. We don't all have the same gift. Some of us might have the same gift, but we don't all have the same gift. See? There are various gifts, and God gives them as he pleases. And it's a total waste of time and energy to wish you had somebody else's gift. Embrace the one that you got. That's your role. That is your role. And he expects us to do it. We're stewards, whether we like it or not. The difference is, are you going to be a good steward or a bad steward? And Peter wants you to be which one? A good one, right? When the master comes back, hey, how'd you do with your chores? How'd you do with your talents? How'd you do with the investment? Whichever parable you want to use for that. And we want to be able to report that we did what we were supposed to do. And some of those, one of those things that we're supposed to do is to figure out how we can serve our brothers and sisters in the church. If I come to church and I I faithfully attend, but years later, that's kind of all I do is I attend, that is a problem. Because we have clear scriptures that say, hey, I gave you a task. Do it. And we don't want to just sit there and be like, well, the church hasn't assigned me one yet. God assigned you one. Now, we have to help you discern that and discover that. I'm I'm not saying that we don't have any role as a church, as elders, as leaders, as small group leaders, whatever, parents to children. 
But I don't want you to sit there and go, yeah, I don't know, I haven't been given anything, so I guess. Be thinking about how you will report to the Lord on that day when he asks you. College students, don't punt it. Maybe when I get married. Now. Now. Well, I haven't found the church yet. Find one. See? These are basics of Christianity. If you're a Christian, we don't take a time out for four years. Right? If you've recently moved, or you're going to re, you know, move soon, you don't want years to go by, and you're not functioning in these basic Christian ways. We often get so picky about churches that I, we should be picky. On the one hand, we really need to be discerning about the church we go to. It should be healthy, should be solid, should be biblical. Sometimes we find a solid, healthy, biblical church, but I don't like the programs, you know. I don't like what time they meet. Oh, it's too early. And we read the Bible, and it's the letter to the church at Corinth. Which church at Corinth? The one that was at Corinth. That's it. The Ephesians. The church at Ephesus. It wasn't Second Baptist Church of Ephesian on such and such avenue, right? And so it's not bad that we have more options now. But think about this time where... You went to the church that was there. That's it. And you found ways to get involved. And when it got ugly, you covered over it. With what? Love. Earnest love. And you found ways to intentionally serve your brothers and sisters with the varied grace that has been given to to each of us. And then, he doesn't really go into a list as you would expect, as some other passages do, where it's like, maybe this gift, maybe you have that gift, use this gift. He mentions two that I think are categories. They're speaking and they're serving. Pretty simple. You either have a speaking gift or a serving gift. He says in verse 11, whoever speaks, he's interpreting or explaining this varied grace, these gifts that we receive from verse 10. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So think of people who speak in the church. One example is what I'm doing right now. There's preaching. Another example is what I'll be doing at 1 o'clock. There's teaching, right? Different formats, a little more casual, but I'm still going to be doing a lot of speaking there. What's happening right now downstairs, CFC Kids, got the kids, and explaining to them the gospel. They're speaking, right? Reading of scripture, explanation of offering, leading us in confession and assurance. There's speaking roles in the church. It might not be this public. It could be in a small group setting, and the growth group leader has to speak and lead. It could be one-on-one discipleship. You're in front of somebody, they don't know the gospel. What are you going to do? Well, like, well, I don't know. Here, call the pastor. I'll go get a refill on the drink. Like, talk to them about the gospel. That's your speaking role right there. If you do that as kind of your main contribution to the church, there's a speaking role there. But what he wants to point out is not the definition of the gift, but the use of it. If you have a speaking role, speak God's words. And speak God's words like they're God's words. Right? Oracles. That's a hefty term from the Old Testament. When a prophet would commune with God and God would give them this message and the prophet would be like, I'm probably going to get killed for this, but this is what he said. 
I'm going to kill you. Sorry, that's what he said. It's not always an easy message. Why didn't the prophets change it to dodge death? Because they need to be true to what God actually said. That's why. So when you find me pointing to specifics in a text, I want you to understand it so you can explain it well. Because we're handling not printouts from somebody's blog. This is God's word. And so when we speak God's words, we speak with that kind of weightiness. And again, to kind of move again into what some people might call modern-day prophecy or word of knowledge, listen to me. If you go up to somebody and tell them, God told me to tell you, you better follow that up with what God actually says and not some old nonsense and not something you felt a dream you had. Say it was a dream you had. Say it's a feeling you have. That's fine. Say I have a hunch. I have a feeling. I sense this in my heart. And that might be totally legitimate, and that might be the Spirit of God. But when you say, God told me to say to you, what are you, Moses? Think about that. I, I have a lump in my throat to tell you what God said, and it's black and white right here. And before I stand up here, I'm like, man, do I have that right? That the way we live affects the prayers? Let me look at it again. Let me check what other people have said in commentaries. Before I stand up here and tell you, yeah, that's what it says. That doesn't mean I can never get anything wrong. It just means that the posture with which we approach speaking God's words. Those of you who read scripture up here, I hope you're not like, ugh, this is it's kind of a throwaway thing. It's not really a sermon. It's scripture. Read it and read it well. I try to tell our scripture readers, hey, read it a few times beforehand. Get comfortable with it. Understand what it's saying and then read it to us. That is ministry. And it's important because it's God's word. But what about people who serve? Now think about this. You might be like, wow, people who speak, they're up here and then people who serve, they're behind the scenes. It's like whatever. They need God's strength because it's hard work. That doesn't mean speaking is easy work, but there's something about the service roles that requires leaning on God's strength. So if you're a speak, you have a speaking role, you lean on God's very words to speak. If you have a serving role, you lean on God's strength to serve. Whoever serves, serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, and he will supply it. You ever get weary in serving? Of course, if you're serving well, you're going to get tired, and it's going to be difficult. It's going to be easy to grumble. Verse 9, but we lean on his strength. Prayer is one of those ways. Verse 7, we lean on his strength to do it, but we do do it. We have to do it, and we lean on his strength in order to do that. There's so many service serving roles here at CFC, and if I itemize them, I'd leave people out, but we have people that handle setup and teardown. If you've ever been to any one of our events and there's tables there, somebody set that table up, right? When we leave, and we're like, all right, see you guys next time, and then you come back the next week and those tables are gone, somebody broke those tables down. And if they're clean, somebody wiped them. It's oftentimes behind the scenes and, and hard to specifically appreciate, but it's hard work, and it helps the church. And I don't want anybody here who serves in that kind of role to think, well, that's not as 
prominence, you know, like as, as preaching, it's important. Property care, right? Making sure things are in place helps us do ministry. And people are blessed by it. And they're served by it. And they're loved by it. So they're speaking roles and they're serving roles. And even though that's not a whole list, that might help you start thinking, like, at least which category do I think I really excel in? And then whittle it down from there. Um, I, I don't love spiritual gift surveys, and maybe some of you have taken them and been really blessed by them. I find like they're, they're, they kind of put you in a box. I don't, I don't really like any sort of personality surveys. Oh, I just found out that I'm a bubbly personality. Just found out? Because you paid $90 for that psychology exam? Give me a break. I think the best way to discover spiritual gifts is not by downloading a PDF and filling out 50 questions. It's rolling up your sleeves and getting involved. Over time, people are going to be like, wow, thank you. You're like, well, I'm good at that. Yeah, you're good at that. Actually, I kind of like it. Guess what you're discovering, <laughs> right? And I, I fall into preaching much that way. Um, for many years, I went to a Christian school. I remember the teacher saying, hey, you're going to lead devotions today. I'm like, say what? I'm not even awake, first of all, in the morning. And these students, it's not cool to lead devotions. Second, they don't, my main thing is like, they don't care. They don't care. I know these kids. They do not care about what God says. I'm going to stand up there for 10 minutes. One of their supposed peers is like, just do it. It's, so, it's going to be great. Just do it. People speaking into my life, preaching opportunities, teaching opportunities at church that kind of came my way. And then as I did it, I'm like, hey, you know. And that might be it for you. So you don't go home today and look at a list and be like, oh, how about that one? But, but just start getting involved. What intrigues you? What does the church need? As you discover, we really need, really need help here. Maybe you do that for a season. Find out that's not really your gift, but you helped us plug a hole for a little bit. That's legit. That's fine. Over time, you'll find what that specific role is. And the reason why I feel comfortable saying that is because Peter and Paul and nobody else gives us a five-step process of discovering the specific gifts. They just assume you're going to discover it. So don't make that a big deal. Don't make the discovery of it that big of a deal. What is a big deal is not doing anything. That's a problem. But just get in there. We all make mistakes. We all might shuffle around a little bit, and that's okay. But the point is, how can I love the church? Where are their needs? Where do people need help? And how can I match that? How, what can I bring to the table to help along with that? I find it interesting that those two categories, speaking and serving, tend to fit underneath the categories of officers in the church where elders are called to specifically oversee the teaching ministries of the church. Remember in Acts, the widows, certain widows weren't getting served and they brought it to the apostles and like, well, we need to focus on the teaching of the word not serving tables, then they didn't follow that up because serving tables doesn't matter. It does matter. So get seven men full of the Holy Spirit to oversee the serving. Serving being the verb, and then later in Scripture, servant being the noun is deacon. And so you've got speaking and serving. Elders specifically oversee the, serv- the speaking, and deacons are delegated to oversee specifically the serving. That includes our finances, that includes our facilities, that includes our benevolence, that includes all kinds of ministries that the church has. It's not that the elders don't pay attention to those, but particular attention set 
by the deacons. So if you're interested in speaking roles, talk to one of us elders. If you're interested in a serving role, talk to one of the deacons, Bill or Winder, and that's a good place to start, I think. Disciples, disciples assist the church. Disciples assist the church. It's not optional. It's a basic sign of Christian growth. Why? We'll close with this. He gives it to us at the end. It's so weighty. We do this. We serve. We speak in the ways that we do as good stewards. The end of verse 11. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Think about that. The glory of God. The absolute reign and dominion of Christ. How do you support that? How do you give glory to God? To give, to give him glory through Christ. Well, God gains glory to, to, for himself by redeeming a community that was at once estranged from him and from each other and bringing them into communion with him. Prayers. There's the vertical. And with each other. Love one another. Love covers sins. And he brings a community that's estranged from God and estranged from each other and brings them into a family at peace with God and loving one another through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's how he gains glory. And what Peter is saying is one of the ways we know that that has actually happened, that it's not just you found us on a website and you plopped in a chair, but you're actually part of a community, a living, organic body of Christ here. One of those ways is serving. One of those ways is speaking. Loving one another through specific gifts. And that is how, he says, in order that... In everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So that is like way up here in the stratosphere, and we think of arranging chairs down here and like this mundane hardly counts. And Peter brings the two together. You can bring glory to this owner of the universe by setting up a chair so somebody has a place to sit for that pizza with the pastor or whatever it is. That's awesome. And God sees all of it. Even if we're not always publicly recognized for the things that we do, those small roles, those small things, God does see it. And he's like, good steward. Good steward. That's awesome. Even when we're not thanked every time, God gets the glory. To him belong glory. And we don't do it for our own, of course. Those of you who have more pronounced public out loud ministries. I think of, the mo- of us, I need to hear this the most. It's easy for us to do it for our own glory. We can do it for our own glory because everybody sees it. And like for me, like it ends up on YouTube and stuff. Like that's kind of daunting. We need to remind ourselves, I, the reason why I put energy and effort into it is for God's glory and not for attention that goes to me. For those of us that are in more discreet roles and aren't as noticeable, you could be tempted to go, man, where is my glory? I wasn't thanked for that. Well, you should be thanked for that. But be encouraged that the glory goes to God. And you did it ultimately for God's attention. So then when people come to our church, they can see this loving community operating the way we say it's supposed to operate. As we do that, God is pleased and glorified in the ways that we assist the church. Let's pray.
Father, we ask that now as we close in this song, you would work your grace down into us, Father. Help us to discern the ways that we can serve. Give us the energy to do it, the humility to do it. Um, Father, may we not enter these roles without the love that is necessary. Help us to have the love for the saints first, to be earnest in that love, and then find those ways that we can express that love to one another in this community. I'm thankful for a church that is so involved and so many of us wearing so many different hats and um, serving so many different roles. Um, it is a privilege and it's, it's a wonderful thing to see it in action. For those of us who are willing and eager and just haven't found the spot yet, haven't found the role yet, help us as a church to help them find ways to roll up their sleeves and get involved for your glory and for your name. And it's for your glory name that we sing this song, Father. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you